Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com. Welcome to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Ahead this hour, we'll discuss the controversy over Nebraska Senator Ben Sass's candidacy for president of the University of Florida. First, though, a jury has decided that the Parkland shooter should spend the rest of his life in prison. Yeah, that's right, Matthew. The unanimous verdict for life in prison with no parole was handed down Thursday, four years and eight months after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School that killed 17 people and injured 17 others. Family members of the victims who were in court to hear the verdict reacted with shock and fury. Joining us with more is WLRN reporter Gerard Albert III. Gerard, thanks for being with us. Of course, thank you. So what do we know about why the jury recommended life in prison rather than the death penalty for the shooter? Well, in Florida, the decision for a death penalty has to come from a unanimous jury. So we know at least one or more of the jurors didn't vote for death. Uh, we also know that um, to do that, they, they, they found that the aggravating factors, the things that the prosecution presented, did, go be, uh, did get proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Things like how heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and how cold, calculated, and premeditated the shootings were. But at least one or more jurors found that the mitigating circumstances, the things that the defense presented, things like the shooter's mental illness and that the shooter's birth mother drank heavily while he was in the womb, that those things outweighed the the things that the prosecutions were prosecution was trying to prove. The Parkland family members were watching for this verdict closely. They expressed reactions right on their faces in court. What are they telling you about the verdict since we learned how this was going to be adjudicated? You know, most of the family members are very upset. They feel, and these are some of their own words, they feel betrayed. They feel like the justice system has let them down and, and, and they're angry. They they did not want this verdict. Um, and and they, they, a lot of them are um, upset that the shooter will get life in prison. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been more than four years to get to this verdict. Now that there is some closure, put this in context for us. What does this mean for the community and for Florida, too? You know, the community was upset yesterday. I don't think anybody, uh, well, a lot of the people involved in watching the trial wanted a life sentence. But, um, you know, when, when the dust settles and when, when, when the emotions settle down, you know, nothing has changed. Nothing's going to bring back these 17 people but, um, you know, the, these parents and these family members and these former students and the survivors have all done so much work on gun control legislation, getting laws changed uh, in the state. And then recently, uh, nationally, a lot of them were involved in, in Biden's gun legislation this year. So, you know, th that work isn't going to stop and, and shouldn't be overlooked mm -hmm. when we talk about all this stuff sparked a whole movement, uh, including uh, amongst many of the former students there at Parkland uh, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High. Thank you, Gerard. Gerard Albert III reporting on this for WLRN. Thank you. Well, turning now to Gainesville, that's where protests erupted this week on the University of Florida campus. hear students chanting there uh, outside the hall where Senator Ben Sass was uh, due to speak. Some students say they don't want Senator Sass to lead the flagship university. Now Sass was the lone finalist announced for the job by UF following a secretive hiring process. The UF Board of Trustees has come under fire for what's being called a lack of transparency in the job search. And students and staff spoke out against Sass's previous views on same-sex marriage. Before he took questions during the forum, Senator Sass said he was looking forward to stepping back from politics in this new role. I've obviously 
had to take positions on a lot of federal uh, policy and political issues that won't align with the views of everybody in this room or everybody in this campus. Um, but that's just one small subset of who each of us are as people. Whatever, federal, whatever positions you've had on federal policy or political issues um, don't define who any of you are and they don't define who I am. Well, as Sass said he was anticipating, he did get some questions about some of those issues. He was asked by students and faculty about how he would protect LGBTQ rights, and this is what Sass had to say. The, the responsibility of um, the, the president and, frankly, everybody in leadership at this institution is to create a community where people vigorously wrestle about whatever the issues are in their classes at that moment but that the community is a place of um, respect and inclusion for all, all Gators. Well, Andrew Atterbury covers education for Politico and joins us now. Thanks for being here, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. First, though, we want to welcome uh, Christian Casal, who covers the university administration for UF student newspaper, The Independent Alligator. Christian, thanks for being here, too. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. And you can join the conversation as well. The number to call is 305-995-1800. You can send us a tweet. We're at Florida Roundup. What are your thoughts on the hiring process, uh, the candidate himself, and what comes next? Christian, you covered the protest. Just talk us through what happened. Yeah, sure thing. So, you know, Thursday night when the university announced that SAS was their sole candidate, we already were hearing um, stirrings that a coalition of, you know, student and local groups were planning on protesting his forums on Monday. That forum was that protest was scheduled for 2.30 to coincide with the student forum. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't sure you know, what expectations were for the protest, but about you know, 400 people showed up, were very spirited. Maybe the, you know, the most uh, angry I've seen people at a UF protest in my time reporting here. And uh, you know, they made their way into Emerson Hall, where Sass was speaking to, with uh, faculty and answering student questions and banging on the doors, went up the stairs, interrupted his student forum. You know, at first we were told that the forum went on as long as they had anticipated. And then later on, uh, we were told that it ended about 15 minutes early. So is it, I mean, is it a politically active campus? Um, like, obviously, a little bit of surprise in the amount of um, energy that was in this protest. But uh, it, are, are people politically engaged at the campus in Gainesville? Yeah, there's definitely a core of, you know, uh, progressive groups on campus, you know, the Graduate Assistance United, there's the uh, UF Democrats, the uh, Young Democratic Socialists of America, and United Campus Workers. And, you know, Latchua County and Gainesville in general definitely have a core of very progressive activists. Those people, you know, feed into each other. When you attend progressive causes here, when you go to protests, you definitely see a lot of familiar faces. Mm-hmm. What kind of questions then were faculty and students asking during those forums? Well, I think there were definitely concerns with past political statements that Sass made about his opposition to abortion, his opposition to gay marriage. You know, I think in one particular statement uh, having to do with Oberfeld v. Hodge, he said that it's important to maintain the institution of the family, that, you know, babies need one, uh, a father and a mother. And, you know, that didn't play well with a lot of you know these young activists who, you know, a, a majority of the people protesting were members of the LGBT community or were, were in. Right. Um, so faculty union president Paul Ortiz was at the protest. Um, you've got some footage of him speaking outside uh, on your Twitter feed. What did he have to say about this process of selecting Ben Sass as the sole candidate and, and this, uh, you know, how this was all done? Well, he made a point during his speech to put the word qu- uh, search in air quotes which may mm-hmm. be indicative of how he felt about it. You know, he echoed a lot of things that he told me when I interviewed him on uh, the previous Thursday that he felt that there's zero, zero transparency from the search committee that, you know, in a 2014 search, you know, he was at UF at that time, uh, there was more transparency and faculty were communicating with the presidential search committee about candidates and applicants they're hearing about. And there's yeah, a lot of collaboration. But now, you know, we didn't hear any names from this search until last Thursday. And that's likely the only name we'll ever hear. Uh, so I think there's, yeah, definitely a lot of frustration that they weren't involved. Yeah. You're listening to the Florida Roundup. Uh, we're talking about the selection of Ben Sass as the sole candidate uh, for University of Florida president and the protests that erupted 
on campus in Gainesville this week. Give us a call. What are your thoughts on this? 305-995-1800. You can also send us a tweet at Florida Roundup. Uh, Christian, you also talked to the Senate faculty president about how this happened, right? How SAS ended up as the only finalist. Uh, What did she tell you? Yeah, that's right. I interviewed her yesterday. And what she told me is that there were 12 kind of final candidates for the position. And they, nine of them were uh, presidents of major research universities. And uh, Dr. Phelan, the Senate faculty president, mentioned that some others were uh, chancellors of university systems. And that uh, they all told the search committee you know, individually that unless they would be named the sole finalist, they did not want their names in any kind of shortlist or announced in any way. And that's you know a deviation from the 2014 search where we had three final candidates. You know, one of them was now President uh, Kent Fox. He was the provost of Cornell, and they went through a process where they talked to faculty, they went through forms, they interviewed board trustees, and then there was the final selection. But this was definitely a different search. What happens next in the search process? Because it it is important, I think, to note. Although you you mentioned that some you know some folks do see this as kind of a foregone conclusion, he is the sole candidate, but he hasn't actually accepted the job yet, right? So what happens from here on out? Well, on November 1st, he will interview with the Board of Trustees. Uh, that, in my reporting, I've seen no reason to see why he wouldn't uh, get the job. You know, Maury Hosseini, the chair of the Board of Trustees, put out a statement uh, when they announced that saying that he has his approval. You know, he was uh, voted in unanimously by the uh, Presidential Search Committee and he has the approval of the Senate Faculty President. But, you know, if he is approved by the Board of Trustees, which we expect, then later in the month, he would have to be approved by the Florida Board of Governors. We've been speaking with uh, Christian Casal. He covers the University Administration for U.S. student newspaper, The Independent Alligator. Stay with us, Christian. Yep, sure thing. It's 305-995-1800 to call us statewide live here on the Florida Roundup. Let's go now to Andrew Atterbury. He covers education for Politico. Hey, Andrew. Hey, how's it going? Good to have you. So Senator Sass took pains to distance his record as a U.S. senator from the job at UF he says he would do as president of the university. What do you make of that? Can he step back from politics in this kind of role? Sure. Hey, before we go, I want to say Alligator down there in Gainesville, that student paper has done a really great job in what in covering this, uh, this search and the senator's journey down there. Uh, Christian, everybody else, the whole gang, they've really done a great job of making sure people see what's going on. And I think that's helps really elevate this and, and get more eyes on it. So as far as your question, we've seen it happen in Florida before. Remember, FSU's former president was a, a very powerful state senator, John Thrasher, and people, mm-hmm. and some of the people I've talked to in, in policymakers in Florida, they, they bring that up as a, another example because there were protests at the time too when he took over. And people really were questioning if, if he could put politics aside kind of in the same vein. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, he did. And they really think he had a great, a great presidency there. So that's where a lot of people point to on the other side of this. Yeah, some say Sass is a good fit for the role. Uh, Senator Jeff Brandis telling the Tampa Bay Times that he's a good choice overall, although he didn't agree with the way the university uh, governed the selection process. Uh, let's talk about that. It was a secretive process. Will there be more scrutiny uh, into the law governing how universities pick these candidates because of the way this all played out? In Florida, I don't, I don't see why they would. I mean, the people who wrote the law, uh, Senator Rodriguez, Senator Ray Rodriguez, who's the incoming chancellor, he, he said that it followed the spirit of the law, and he said that they, their search was great. The people who, the policymakers behind this, they think that the selection of the senator from Nebraska was really proof that this worked. I mean, they point they point to that list that Christian mentioned earlier. These presidents from prestigious universities applied for this, even though we don't know and we kind of have to take people's word for it. They're saying that because these people applied for it and because they ended up with a sitting senator, a sitting U.S. senator, you know, pretty big deal. They say that, hey, that's a win. This law is doing its job. Let's go to Pompano Beach. Brian calling the Florida Roundup from Pompano Beach, Florida. Hey, Brian. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Hi. Go ahead. So my comment is it's hard to square someone like Ben Sass coming in, saying he's going to be the leader of a very large university, uh, state university, when 
this is someone who has, in my opinion, really failed in leading the country uh, by pointing people towards his support of Trump, which he now finds himself at odds with, right? It's, it's like his moral compass has, you know, suddenly gotten a hold of him, and he's saying to himself, Jesus, I can't support, uh, you know, this Republican administration right now. It's not, you know, uh, you know, it's not squaring with my, you know, moral ideology. So I'm going to go and now, and even though I failed as a senator, I'm going to go and lead this university. That that doesn't that doesn't seem to sit right with me. And so I support the the protest taking place at University of Florida. All right, uh, Brian. Uh, thank you for that, Andrew Atterbury, Politico. Uh, you know, Ben Sass uh, did break with former President Trump at a certain point. And by the way, Trump opposed Sass's candidacy to lead UF. Can you speak a little bit about the national politics going into this news? Sure. And it's interesting to think that uh, a former president would weigh in on the search at a University of Florida. It's something you probably wouldn't think would happen in typical years, like in previous searches and things like that. But yeah, that, that really makes it an interesting move because of his stance with uh, former President Trump, but how that will play at University of Florida, I don't know if that really will make an impact. I mean, he, his the, if if he does end up taking the job at UF, uh, Senator Sass, his main thing is going to be working with the state legislature in Tallahassee, and, and that's something that he even admitted in his interviews that he's going to have to learn more about the dynamics of, and I think that's a really big deal because of how much uh, funding and everything like that is tied up in the legislature and how you get projects funded and things like that, so that's going to be a huge job for him, so yeah, he did have uh, kind of a beef there with the former president, but I don't know how much that's really going to play into everything else and what he has to actually do on the in the job. Let's get one more calling quickly, if we can. Mike in Gainesville. Go ahead, Mike. Hi. Um, I've been an employee at uh, University of Florida for more than a couple decades, and uh, I'm really quite alarmed at the way this worked. I'm very happy to see that the students have uh, made their selves known. Um, you know, you mentioned about the uh, the congressional role he had and his uh, votes against LBGTQ, also climate change, also Affordable Care Act. These are not the kinds of things that represent the community here at the University of Florida. Uh, the, gator, the alligator reported that he was asked about the Stop Woke Act, and his response was he didn't know about it. Does that sound like somebody who came well prepared for a job or someone who was... Oh, okay, Mike. And I, I'm not trying to cut you off. We're just close to a break. Andrew, the sentiment on the campus among some that uh, SAS doesn't fit with the the culture and the politics of the campus. Go ahead quickly. Yeah, sure. And, and that's a, and that's a huge reason that a lot of these people are protesting. Y'all, y'all played the, the clip earlier of, of the senator basically trying to say, hey, I know a lot of the, my policy... Uh, decisions and statements in the past don't jive with people on the campus but you know I, i'm trying to be different than that going forward so he's really trying to say the right things but like uh like the caller mentioned he has a lot to learn he doesn't he didn't know what the stop woke act is that's a huge thing that a, a people are a lot of people are concerned about on university campuses especially UF. on campuses yeah yeah so there's a lot sure. of, there's a lot of learning to do so there's there's a steep learning curve and he isn't and... an academic so people were pretty upset. Not an academic either. Although, as you pointed out, uh, other presidents haven't been. But Andrew Atterbury of Politico, thank you so much uh, for sharing your insights. And we also want to thank Christian Casal with The Alligator, the, uh, the student newspaper, the independent alligator on the UF campus with us today as well. Thanks. Up next, U.S. Representative Val Demings trailing Senator Marco Rubio in the polls. More on that story when we return. Today in Music History from Anthology on 89.9 HD3. October 14th, 1967, after 15 weeks at number one, the Beatles album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is knocked out of the top spot by Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe. I was out chopping cotton and my brother was baling hay. Today in Music History, sponsored by Grassroots Natural Market in Five Points. Family owned since 2006 and featuring organic produce, supplements, and all the groceries on your list. 
Taxes, the environment, energy, education, health care, a state that's gaining nearly a thousand new residents every day and the ongoing quest for resources to meet that growing need. These are critical issues that affect everyone in Florida, and they're just some of the issues we follow every week on Capital Report. It's your direct connection to what's going on in Tallahassee and what it means to you. Tonight at 6.30 on WJCT News 89.9. Allison Mitchell will be discussing the history of black electoral politics in the state this week at the University of Central Florida. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, we'll talk with Allison Mitchell. We'll discuss the sable palm and migrant farm workers in Apopka. That's Florida Frontiers, Monday evening at 6.30 on WJCT News 89.9. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family-owned and operated since 1936, and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, always be celebrating. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, with a few weeks left until the November midterms, U.S. Representative Val Demings is trailing Senator Marco Rubio in the polls. But the Orlando Democrat and former Orlando police chief hopes to pull off an upset victory against Rubio in her bid to take the Republican seat in the Senate. Demings has taken aim at Rubio for a stance on abortion and climate change and focused on bread and butter issues like lowering inflation and prescription drug costs and repairing infrastructure. She's also hit Rubio hard on his position on abortion in the wake of the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. But will that be enough to persuade voters? Wherever you are in the state, here's a question for you. Are you planning to vote in the November midterms and who will get your vote for senator? incumbent Republican Senator Marco Rubio, or will you vote for his challenger, Democrat and Congresswoman Val Demings of Orlando? Call us up now. Let us know who will get your vote. Florida, 305-995-1800. Call us up live statewide or tweet the show at Florida Roundup. Skyler Swisher reports for the Orlando Sentinel. He covers this race and joins us now. Hey, Skyler. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to have you. So the latest polling shows Senator Rubio has a comfortable lead, about a six-point advantage over Val Demings, 47 to 41 percent as the candidates prepare to face off next Tuesday, actually, in their only televised debate. How would you characterize the state of the race a few weeks out from Election Day? Yeah, so right now, you know, when I talk with Republicans, um, they're feeling pretty confident about this race. And when I talk to some Democratic strategists, you know, they'll say candidly that this is an uphill climb. And um, really, there's there's several reasons for that. Um, first of all, you know, Senator uh, Rubio, he's the incumbent. You know, he has statewide name recognition. Um, also, you know, traditionally, the party that's out of power, uh, which in this case is the Republican, tends to do well in midterm elections. Um, and also, you know, Florida is trending Republican. Um, you know, in the 2020 election, the GOP really made some inroads uh, with Latinos in uh, Miami-Dade and Osceola counties. And that's a group that uh, Rubio does well with as a Spanish speaker and a Cuban-American. Sure. Now, Senator Rubio has co-sponsored a proposed 15-week federal abortion ban. We already have that statute in Florida. Demings is leaning hard into her support for reproductive rights. Uh, polling in Florida does show a majority of Floridians support abortion rights. How much is the abortion issue factoring into this race? You know, it's, it's a huge factor, and this is really where the Democrats um, are hoping to make some inroads with voters. Um, so they have definitely highlighted this, um, and they are definitely highlighting that Senator Rubio, you know, signed on to that 15-week bill and has also said that you know he would personally support an abortion ban without exceptions for uh, rape or incest. Now, what I'm hearing from the Republicans is they think that other issues are going to kind of trump this abortion issue, such as inflation. So the Republicans are really trying to, to hone in on the inflation issue and, and make the race about that. 
Yeah, let's talk about those pocketbook issues, the cost of housing in the state, economic concerns. How are these two candidates responding to voters when they talk about those kitchen table issues? Um, Yeah, so I think what um, Senator Rubio would like to do is to uh, tie um, Representative Demings to President Biden. Um, You know, he wants to make this a referendum on Biden. And, you know, his explanation is, is it's the Democratic policies Um, that are causing this inflation. Um, You know, it seems like the way what uh, Representative Demings is trying to do um, is really to kind of distance herself um, from Washington, you know, to portray herself as a centrist, someone with common sense, a former police chief. Um, If you look at a lot of her messaging, it's not uh, Representative Demings, it's Chief Demings. So that seems to be her strategy. Yeah, in in her television ads, she said uh, things like defunding the police is a crazy idea. Uh, So uh, you also reported back in late September that Demings decided to skip a rally President Biden had planned in Orlando. That rally did get canceled because of Hurricane Ian. So Demings, we see, trying to carve uh, her lane in this race apart from President Biden. Uh, As for Rubio... uh, he uh, is he looking to uh, make an identity for himself apart from uh, former President Trump? Is that a factor in the race on the Republican side? Um, you know, really, you haven't seen um, Senator Rubio talking a lot about former President Trump. Um, it seems like his messaging is to try to tie um, Representative Demings to what he would say is the radical left. You know, he's really trying to push this message that. Um, that she is kind of on board with these quote unquote, you know, woke leftist politicians. Um, you know, he's bringing up the socialist market Marxist terms. Um, so that seems to be, you know, his line of attack against Demings and Tim Demings is pushing very hard, uh, against that. You know, she's saying stuff like, you know, I don't want to defund the police. I am the police. You know, she has uh, law enforcement credentials. Mm-hmm. Now, Demings has also called for a special session of the Florida legislature to address problems with the state's homeowners insurance market in the wake of Hurricane Ian. It's a mess, as we've been reporting here on the Florida Roundup. Senator Rubio has called for $33 billion in disaster relief to help with the aftermath of the storm. Uh, Democrats have been quick to point out he did not attend a vote on a short-term funding bill that included disaster relief. Uh, our other senator... Senator Rick Scott voted against it. Let's talk about the impact of Hurricane Ian on the fortunes of both Demings and Rubio's campaigns. How much is Ian playing into all of this and everything that's flown out of that? Yeah, I mean, I think this will be an issue. Um, I, you know, I think that um, uh, Demings is going to criticize, you know, Rubio for missing that vote. Um, Rubio is saying that he wants, he does support the disaster relief, but he wants it to be a standalone um, bill. And there was also a few instances where Representative Demings um, did not vote or voted against some disaster relief because of, she said it wasn't enough. And there was also, you know, other items that were in that spending package. So I definitely expect there'll be some back and forth on this, and it'll probably be something that would come up during the debate on Tuesday. Right, lots to look forward to in that debate. You're listening to the Florida Roundup. Uh, we're taking your calls, 305-995-1800, and your tweets at Florida Roundup, talking with Skylar Swisher of the Orlando Sentinel about the race for Senate. Uh, Val Demings challenging Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, first of all, let's go to Francis. Uh, Francis, what are you thinking about this race? Well, I always vote, and I'll be voting for Val Demings. And was that? Well, um, I didn't used to vote a straight party ticket, although I'm registered Democrat. But as of about 2016, shall I say, as uh, partisanship has become so far divided, um, I can't vote Republican at all because I, didn't, I never see any candidates that have you know reasonable beliefs, and if they have voted uh, against, say, the impeachment processes for Trump um, or, uh, in, you know, then I can't support them because, mm. um, you know, look look what happened, that he, 
he wasn't impeached, and we end up with January 6th. So um, definitely Val Demings. Francis uh, calling in there from uh, Fort Pierce. Thanks so much for your call, Francis. Let's go to Joe in Lakeland. Uh, Joe, what are you thinking when you look at this race? Guys, yeah, I transferred here in 92 uh, and just watched a steady decline and a steady vote for the Republican Party. I sat through the Catherine Harris vote overturn to George Bush and Al Gore, and he succeeded peacefully after that transition. There was no insurrection at our Capitol in Florida. Uh, you know, was, I, so I watched that and became very disheartened right then and there. Changed my voting mm-hmm. status because I thought there were some things going on there. That wasn't legal. So uh, moving fast forward to now. Uh, and, and, and in between that time, there was a period where I had to go on public assistance after you know, losing my job. And, and then it, there was another awakening. Okay, what's this right-to-work state crap that limits mm. uh, independent contractors' rights, any type of lawsuits? All this stems from Republican lobbying and then voting towards that, that sector of government, not for the people, because the right-to-work is not your right to work. It's a coin phrase they came up with to dupe the people into believing that they're for your rights as a worker, where in actuality it's for the corporations and for the businesses. And then as far as public assistance, uh, they right. made no adjustments right. to that amount of public assistance they've given families over the year. If you have to go on public So, so Joe, let me, let, me just, let me just ask you then, what, when you look at this matchup, are you thinking Val Demings? Are you thinking uh, Marco Rubio? Oh, definitely not Rubio. Like I said, I changed my status in 2000 mm. uh, to Democrat, and it's right. just a whole list of laundry reasons. And, and you know, they're, they're good at saying one thing to the public, but in their voting and in their representation, but Florida, they do the exact opposite, guys. We've got to get somebody fresh in here to give another chance. Let's give these guys, let's give Democrats a chance at the wheel. Just let them drive for a little bit. Let's see if things will get better. I challenge you to do that. Ladies of Florida, I've got your back. I'm going to vote with you as well, and you're right. And, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's make Florida better, for real. Joe, Joe, thanks for your call. Joe calling in there from Lakeland. I want to get one more call in here from Kevin, uh, Port St. Lucie. Kevin, listening to this debate, what's going through your mind? Hey, I just wanted to touch in and um, say I uh, feel very sorry for the gentleman before me. Uh, it seems like he has more of a work grievance rather than a Republican Party grievance. But there's a few key point things I wanted to hear. I wanted to touch on about Val Demings. Mm. He was a VIP player in the illegitimate uh, false impeachment of Donald Trump. Number one, he was never in, he was never uh, impeached. Um, there was well, he, he was impeached. He was impeached. He may not have been convicted, but he was definitely impeached. He was not convicted in the impeachment. He was never found guilty. Second thing, there's much more nuance to the um, January 6th. It was not a legitimate um, insurrection. There were no one there died except for someone who died from state police. The government killed someone there. Right. Well, I mean, there's obviously a a whole process of uh, investigation going on into that. We are coming up on a break, though. So just just quickly, sounds like your your votes for for Rubio. Yes. Third thing, uh, Val Demings, she was irresponsible with her firearm. I do not trust an irresponsible person who cannot, with her firearm, uh, in state legislator. She's okay. Okay, we're we're to we're, we're going to have to leave it. And- we're going to have to leave it there. But thanks for your call, Kevin. We have been speaking with uh, Skylar Swisher from the Orlando Sentinel too. Just quickly, in the last thirty seconds or so here, Skylar, um, some. Strong opinions there. You're going to see some, uh, uh, I guess there's quite a bit of interest in this race at the ballot box. Right. Yeah. And I think what you really see on display here, um, it's just interesting to look at Rubio uh, and Trump. You know, when he ran for president, he was very critical of Trump, said he wasn't fit to be president. And now, you know, he's in a position with the Republican Party where he cannot um, come out and publicly uh, oppose former President Trump. Um, He, you know, he's Trump is still a popular figure with that base. uh, So he is not going to be coming out and condemning Trump. Skylar Swisher with the Orlando Sentinel reporting on the race for Senate. Val Demings challenging Senator Marco Rubio. Skylar, thanks so much for your reporting and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Still to come, oh, and flooding. Oh, keep going. No, uh, you're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Let's keep Skylar going if we could. Um, Skylar Swisher, uh, are you still with us? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Uh, we heard a caller a minute ago say he felt that Val Demings uh, handled her firearm inappropriately when she was a police officer. 
I hadn't heard about that. Uh, let's talk about that for just a minute. Yeah, there was an incident. Um, I haven't done um, a great deal of research on it where her, her firearm was stolen out of her car when she was with the uh, Orlando Police Department. Um, that happened some time ago. I, I think perhaps a decade or maybe longer ago. I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just wanted to make sure we we uh, touched on that since he had brought it up. Now, let me ask you as well, Skyler. Demings has made a big push to try to portray Marco Rubio as something of an absentee senator, mm-hmm. uh, as someone who's not committed to the job, who doesn't show up to work, who doesn't show up for votes. What about that line of attack? Yeah, so um, this has been used against Rubio before. Um, and, you know, it is true when you look at his um, absentee rate, um, you can look it up on GovTrack, which is a nonpartisan you know, source. Um, and he does have a higher absentee rate um, than other senators. Um, much of that has to do with um, when he ran for president. Um, so he was gone a lot during that time. So it has gotten better. Um, but that claim is uh, true that, that uh, Representative Demings is making against uh, Senator Rubio. Lots of calls. Let's go to Sylvia in Miami. Hi, Sylvia. How are you? Um, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, sure. I'm a snowbird, and but I'm living in Florida now. I've been here for two years, but snowbird for 30. And my mother was uh, a, a staunch Republican until... Her, uh, recently, and she really d- detested Rubio. I detest Rubio. I do not think he represents Hispanics. He doesn't represent the Cubans. Uh, um, Cuban. Uh, his uh, position on abortion is not acceptable, and uh, he's right-wing radical, if you ask me. I like Bell Devings. I think that she'll do a great job, and I, if I was voting, would vote for her, but I still have to uh, register because I'm registered in Michigan. But that's who I'd vote okay, for. Okay, My family will vote for. Oh, righty. Um, Skyler, getting back to the abortion vote, uh, and, and this is a midterm election, Women in this state uh, show a bipartisan preference to keep abortion rights. But uh, will there be enough turnout of those kinds of voters in a midterm to give Demings a boost? Yeah, I mean, I had a I heard a Republican strategist say, well, the people that are going to be voting um, on abortion as their primary issue would already be voting for the Democrats. Um, but I think the big question will be, is it is the outrage over the overturning of Roe v. Wade enough to sway some of those NPA voters to vote for the Democratic candidate, um, as well as, you know, maybe even some more moderate Republican women? Um, so that's kind of uh, something to watch with this election. And she also referenced the Cuban vote in South Florida, which is pretty important. Does Senator Rubio bring them along, as uh, would be the conventional wisdom? Exactly, yeah. And, and traditionally, that's been a strong source of support for um, Senator Rubio. Um, and if you do look back at the 2020 election, um, you know, Trump did make some inroads uh, in Dade County, um, as well as Osceola. Um, so uh, that'll definitely be an important factor in the race. Skylar Swisher covering the Rubio Demings race for the Orlando Sentinel. And thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Still to come, flooding continues to plague the recovery from Hurricane Ian in central Florida as state and federal dollars pour in to meet the cost of fixing roads. That's next on the Florida Round. Hi, I'm Brendan Rivers, lead reporter for ADAPT from Jacksonville Today. This year's State of the River report says we should still be worried about the health of the St. John's. Hear from scientists behind the report in a virtual panel discussion on Tuesday, October 18th at 4 p.m. This event is free and open to the public. Register now at wjct.org events. The Apple TV Plus dramedy Bad Sisters delves into the bonds of five Irish sisters, four of whom are intent on murdering the husband of sister number five. A friendship isn't like that. You know, a marriage or a partnership isn't like that. It's um, very, very unique. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We talked to creator Sharon Horgan this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at four on WJCT News 89.9. I feel so bad, I gotta worry.
On the next Fresh Air, an interview with Linda Ronstadt. Terry spoke with her when her first memoir was published. Ronstadt has a new memoir called Feels Like Home, a song for the Sonoran borderlands. It's an exploration of her Mexican roots with recipes of some of the dishes she grew up with. Join us. Today at 1 on WJCT News 89.9. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, it's been more than two weeks since Hurricane Ian carved a path of destruction through Florida. Some parts of central Florida still flooded and could stay that way for many more weeks. That's right, Matt. Meanwhile, in communities damaged by Ian's punishing winds, the slow process of cleanup and recovery continues. FEMA has approved more than $327 million in federal disaster assistance for more than 180,000 individuals and households across Florida in the path of that storm. And Florida lawmakers are adding another $360 million to response efforts. Well, for more on the recovery, what the priorities are now, what comes next, we turn to State Emergency Management Director Kevin Guthrie. United States knew. We'll have that interview for well, you. We'll have in it in a, a minute, moment. Matthew. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what, Matthew? While we wait for them to call that up, uh, you you had the opportunity to speak with him this week, uh, and just bring us up to date on how bad things still are after Ian. Right? Uh, they're still. The- so many yeah, people hurting. There's a lot of flooding. I mean, that's that's one of the main issues. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of the devastation from uh, across the state of Florida, and particularly in those areas around Fort Myers Beach, uh, Charlotte County, you know, Lee County. Um, but beyond that, I mean, some of the areas which people may not be thinking so in so much detail about, uh, further inland, uh, DeSoto County in sort of south central Florida. And around Orlando, too, I mean, Sanford and the Seminole County uh, along the St. John's River, the, the river level pretty high there still, a lot of homes still flooded, and that river is going to take a very long time to go down. So an emergency situation there. It looks like we do have that uh, sound. Let's hear it. Thanks so much for joining me, Kevin. Uh, absolutely. Thank you for having us. So search and rescue teams so far have carried out more than 2,500 rescues to date. Is there still a search and rescue element to the recovery work that's happening now? That is a decision that is made by local level. We, we supply the resources to the local government, and then go, local government, such as um, the municipalities and counties, will say when that is actually going from a search and rescue element to a search and recovery element. I will tell you we are down to one local search and rescue team in the area. So, um, you know, that, that may answer the question for you, but we are down to one local search and rescue team. That's the Fort Myers Beach. I shouldn't say Fort Myers Beach. That's the Fort Myers Lee County uh, search and rescue team. Okay. Are there still some areas, Kevin, that emergency personnel can't get to? I would not say that there's any place that we cannot get to. We, we have been on every island. And when I say we, that's the collective we that's down here responding to this, whether it's, uh, again, municipality, county, state, or FEMA. We have been able to get to every single island. We have been able to get to every single property parcel and do a search and actually uh, you know, work that area. We've mm-hmm. worked with heavy equipment, light equipment, hens, uh, you know, dogs, everything that we have in our arsenal, we have uh, used it on every single parcel that has been impacted by this disaster. What are the biggest needs for people impacted by Hurricane Ian right now? And what's your focus going to be for the next few weeks? So my focus is to coordinate all the activities from all state agencies and also uh, meet the needs of any local municipalities and counties. So we're going to continue to, you know, if local uh, municipalities and counties put in requests that um, we can certainly help them on, then we're going to do that. If we can't um, actually handle it with state agencies, then we'll go to a contract and we'll get the necessary uh, things that they need on contract. So that's what we'll be doing at the local level and municipal level at the state level. 
we're going to continue to, you know, we've already started working with uh, Fort Myers Beach on the debris. Mm-hmm. So um, we're, we're going to be taking a very active role in that. Um, so you'll, you'll see the Florida Division of Emergency Management out uh, as a part of that with uh, Crowder Golf and Thompson Consulting as, as the local vendors. Uh, so we're, we're going to be very involved. You'll see us here continuing on for quite some time and uh, handling, handling what it is that we need to. So um, the, I, I think the question you ultimately asked is, what is it we're doing for survivors right now? And what yeah. can we do to help survivors? And that, the answer to that question is pretty simple. And that is, if people want to know how they can help survivors right now, the best way to do that is still donate cash resources. Um, because to donate stuff, and when I say stuff, I mean clothes and items, you just you imagine yourself would it be better for you to be able to go to walmart or target and buy some clothes that actually fit you and mm. and, and and are new off the off the shelf versus you really don't know where they're coming from so it's better to donate cash it's better to let that individual go out and get the things that they need for their home and uh, as they rebuild their lives so the biggest thing we're going to be helping out disaster survivors with is what we call other needs assistance you know what are those things that are not covered by FEMA, they're not covered by a state agency, and those other needs that are just fall through the cracks. Mm. The, those individuals who have been displaced, whether their homes are destroyed or, or damaged in some way, they're according again to FEMA, there's some 843 households, more than 2,000 people who are being housed in motels and hotels paid for by FEMA through the Transitional Shelter Assistance Program. Do you think that number is likely to rise, and do you have a sense of how long it may last? You know, absolutely. That number is going to go up. We're actually, uh, myself and the uh, federal coordinating officer, along with a couple of other senior officials from FEMA, are absolutely trying to transition people out of shelters. Uh, you know, the Edison Mall, trying to mm-hmm. transition people out of Hertz Arena, trying to shelter, uh, transition people out of community centers into hotels. Um, right now, all of the individuals that are staying in the hotel in Lee County are staying in one hotel. We've got about 35, 40 other hotels in Lee County that participate in the program, but they're full of contractors right now. So we're trying to actively encourage contractors to stay out of the area. And what I mean by stay out of the area, you know, stay down in Collier County, stay up in maybe Sarasota County, the less impacted areas, Mm -hmm. so that we can actually get the survivors from Lee County, DeSoto County, Hardy County, Charlotte County, those more impacted areas, let them actually stay in their communities. So we're working actively to try to get that done and so that we can open up those uh, hotel rooms for the local individuals here. So we will continue to fight that fight and uh, try to get people uh, sheltered in hotels. That program, FEMA's program lasts, it's either 120 or 180 days. I'd have to fact check that, mm-hmm. but it's one or the other. It's either 120 or 180. If people have been displaced from their homes, suffered some kind of damage, but they haven't yet gotten help for one reason or another, what do they need to know? Yeah, so it all starts with a FEMA registration. They have to register with FEMA. We're we're well over 300,000 registrations now, maybe even closer to 400,000 registrations. People must apply with FEMA to get any type of assistance. That's where it starts. That's, you know, that's the application process. So we want to make sure that people get registered. They can do it on the phone. They can do it via the app. They can do it on a website, or they can go to a disaster recovery center and actually apply in person. So that's the first step. Mm-hmm. Then from there, they need to be an active participant in their recovery. And here's what I mean by that. Don't just sit back and wait on FEMA to call you. Be active. You know, call FEMA, um, you know, every other day, maybe every day. Check in on the status of what your application is. See what benefits have been provided to you. People will start to receive letters, and that letter may say you're not approved. Read the entire letter. If the letter says you're not approved, or even it may say denied, read the additional part of the letter because many times all you have to do is show a receipt for something or you need to provide one piece of documentation and then you'll be approved. Mm -hmm. So a denial or a not approved is not a final answer. Read the entire letter, see what it is that you need to provide and then provide that information. If If your home's been destroyed, how are you gonna receive mail? If your home has been destroyed, what you need to do is you need to go to the U.S. Post Office today, or and you can do this online, mm-hmm. um, and have your address changed or forwarded so that all your mail now starts going to another location. You know, a lot of people do that when they're out of town. They'll yeah. do a temporary stop on their mail, or if they're going to be, you know, like right now, myself, I'm, I'm deployed to 
Fort Myers for probably the next um, several months. Mm. So I'm having all my mail sent to my hotel where I'm at now. It, it's a very, very simple process. People can do it at the U.S. Post Office. They can do it in person or they can do it over the phone. And I'm sorry, not over the phone, over the internet and actually have their mail forwarded somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Just finally, Kevin, do you feel like more could have been done to prepare people in the worst affected parts of the state for the impact of the storm? You know, we, this is the one thing that we struggle with more than anything else in in the state of Florida. And I think it's probably disasters across the nation Mm -hmm. is there is a sense of complacency um, in in the United States and in in Florida that it's not going to happen to me. You know, if I'm just barely outside that cone or if I'm not in the center part of that cone, then I don't really need to react. What I think, um, again, what I would wish is that we could get people to look more at the storm surge modeling that we could get, you know, because, again, even though the cone was up into as far north as uh, the city of Tallahassee and up into the panhandle, and then ultimately we had the impact here in Lee County, Storm surge values were all up and down the east coast of Florida. So, you know, even the Keys had a storm surge, uh, I believe, of two to four feet uh, on the National Weather Service. So I would, one of the things we're going to do at the division is really try to educate people more on what a storm surge watch, a storm surge warning, what those actual levels are. You know, there's a lot of people that really don't know what two to four feet really means. Um, you know, they, they imagine, oh, well, I can drive my vehicle through two feet of water. That's not bad. And that was State Emergency Management Director Kevin Guthrie. You can hear his full interview online. That's our show, The Florida Roundup, produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Twe are the producers. WLRN's Director of Radio Operations, our Technical Director is Peter Mance. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels and Isabella De Silva. Richard Ives answers the phone. Our theme music is provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos over at AaronLebos.com. I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. Make it a great weekend, everyone. We'll be back next Friday at noon. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com.